Hello and welcome to B2B Better, the only podcast focused on helping B2B marketers do better marketing through content, community, and social media. My name is Jason Bradwell, and every week I sit down with whip-smart marketing leaders to talk about what it takes to build an audience strategy that scales from day one, and that also delivers real business results, not vanity metrics. If you've come here for theory, then you may be in the wrong place. Each episode is packed to the rafters with actionable insights and takeaways that you can put into practice today. Let me help you be better than boring. Here we go. So today on B2B Better, I am honored to be joined by Ali Schwanke, co-founder and CEO of SimpleStrat, a growth marketing agency based out of Lincoln, Nebraska. How are you doing, Ali? I'm doing great. Thanks for the invite to be here. Uh, it's great to have you on. Um, I say this at the beginning of pretty much every one of my podcasts because a lot of my guests are Twitter friends and it's been so great sure. following you over the last year and, and getting to know you on the platform. Um, I mentioned that you are the co-founder and CEO of SimpleStrat. Tell us a little bit about the agency and, and what you do, what you guys do over there. Sure. SimpleStrat is a company I started about six years ago. And the goal at the time was to be able to have a little bit more of a strategic foundation, hence the name SimpleStrat, to uh, marketing. And since then, and I think everybody shifted their focus a little bit during the pandemic uh, to what people were attuned to at the time. But about two years ago, we really made the intention to niche down into B2B content. So we are helping uh, organizations get uh, you know more leads, more awareness, more impressions, and ultimately business from content marketing. And in doing that, we also developed specific expertise in HubSpot. So we have a HubSpot YouTube channel and a whole line of business where we just do HubSpot consulting for companies of, of any type, so B2C or B2B. But primarily these days, I spend time in, in a lot of sales and in conversations like this, and then assisting the team in content creation and development. Got it. I am a recent uh, convert to HubSpot. We were talking a little bit before we started recording. I brought it on as a platform in my work about three, four months ago, and it has completely changed the game um, or, of the effectiveness of, of me and, and, and my team at the company I work for. But for those of uh, for those listeners who, who aren't aware of HubSpot, you know, what is it and uh, what would be your argument as to why brands should be looking at consider, uh, considering investing in it? That's an interesting question because we have a post on our website that the post was written to answer the search. Uh, I mean, people obviously search this very well. What is HubSpot and what can I do with it? Mm. So people know that they've heard about it. It used to, it started as a, as a marketing automation platform for really this, this inbound methodology that HubSpot developed and, and essentially coined. So the idea at the time when HubSpot first founded about 10 years ago was, um, people were looking for what you have to offer instead of you going out and pushing your message to them. So when people today think of HubSpot, they tend to think of marketing automation, but really they've uh, shifted and grown and they've positioned themselves now as a sales and marketing platform that, that streamlines the entire visibility from lead to customer close to the service side. And then obviously that journey just continues to be cyclical. So there's a, a ton of features inside the platform and how you buy it and how you use it, the, the bigger that they get and the more upstream they go toward enterprise, like competing with Salesforce, the more confusing it gets for a buyer to figure out what it is, what do I need? How do I use it? But once you get that familiarity and kind of that, that curse of knowledge, as I would call it, once you become part of the HubSpot Kool-Aid club, um, it, you see the benefit of it and, and you see a lot of efficiency in, in how sales and marketing teams work together. 
I think a big part of uh, becoming part of that Kool-Aid club is the phenomenal job that HubSpot have done with creating content and courses and a community around that brand. And um, as you say, I think a lot of marketers have probably come across it uh, or heard about it on, on Twitter or online or what have you, but you were just touching on it there. It's not just for marketers, right? Um, right. The platform is designed to be used by multiple functions within a business. Sure. When they released their CRM a couple of years ago, I know at the time that was a big thing for me because I had been a Salesforce admin in a previous role. And so I was familiar with the idea of having this core database behind what you were doing that was guiding the entire customer journey and not just the marketing function. So when they introduced the CRM, I think there was a lot of, um, is this just going to be some sort of random feature that HubSpot you know, rolls out? Or is it going to be a bigger piece? And in the last 12 months, they have really repositioned themselves as the CRM. And around that CRM is all of these, these sales and marketing and, and customer service functions. So I, I'm very excited for the future of what that looks like. And then their ecosystem is just absolutely growing like crazy. So whatever you want to plug into HubSpot, it seems like these days, someone will build it and make it possible for all your data to talk together. And you compared uh, HubSpot a little bit there to uh, Salesforce, particularly when you start getting up to the kind of enterprise level um, of, of a particular client. But uh, they've got a bunch of free tools, right? You know, mm-hmm. even if you are a small business, you can you can benefit a little bit from some of HubSpot's features and functionality. No. Yeah, absolutely. The biggest challenge that I see people run into when they they try to use the free tools is it's it's like giving a bunch of, of founders hammers and, and screwdrivers because you can build amazing things with a hammer if you know what you're doing and you have the right materials and the right blueprint. And I think the idea that you're going to unlock this Pandora's box of amazingness when you use HubSpot. Sure, you will, you will, but it's it is only as useful as what you put into it and how you define the things inside the system, which is why we're having this conversation today. So I think everything in marketing, people want that silver bullet or the easy button. And the easy buttons come when you actually lay the foundation first. One hundred percent. I think I should probably caveat right now before we go any further that this is not a sponsored episode for HubSpot. <laughs> no, it's we, not. <laughs> HubSpot are not paying us to, to to preach the gospel for them. It is just an amazing tool, um, and also super intuitive is what I found. I am not technical at all, and when I was reading some of the documentation and I was kind of talk, uh, learning a little bit about workflows and automations, you know, at first I was a little bit like, oh, this seems like it may be a putting me a little bit outside of my depth, but the, the, the user interface, um, and the intuitiveness of the platform, really anyone, uh, can, can just jump straight in and start doing stuff. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. I think one of the hardest things for, I would say, yes, definitely, definitely not a sponsored episode. The, the hardest thing for me to make sure I convey to people is that it is, it's, it's not that, again, I, I have no, I, I have an agency that consults for HubSpot, but there's no, I'm not paid to talk about it or any, anything like that. What, what I have done is I've worked with various other systems and helped clients with a lot of other systems. And so really by that experience, I've seen a lot of the systems in the marketplace and their use cases. And again, if you have a very technical team, a tool like NetSuite might be okay for you because it's, it's very technical in nature. It's very, I would say the complication that comes from someone who's not as familiar with those processes, the, the rate at which they, they fall is going to be very quick. But if you look at a tool like Zoho, there's a lot less barrier of entry in terms of the price. There is a lot more complication because they haven't invested as much in the intuitive 
UI UX side of things. So really, I think everybody in their exploration of, of tools, and even as we talk about lifecycle stages, pipeline stages, they have to think about what is the technology level of my, of my sales and marketing teams? What do I want to spend my time doing? Do I want to spend my time actually doing the technical stuff or do I want to spend my time doing great marketing? And that's really where the, the end of the conversation um, ends up in HubSpot most often. Mm. When does a brand know that it's ready for a platform like HubSpot? You know, we've talked a little bit about choosing the right kind of platform, but even to go one step before that, you know, what are the kind of signs that a marketing sales team should be looking at to say, okay, we need to bring in some sort of infrastructure foundation to put it in your words, to really kind of, you know, uh, sew together our kind of collective marketing and sales efforts. Sure. So I'll, I'll say this is pretty indicative of any marketing and automation uh, sales platform. So there's usually three different, um, I guess, triggers or signs. The first one is that they are, they are just getting started and they're moving their organization away from spreadsheets. I know that that seems like for some of us that have been in marketing tech for a long time, it, it's almost like a, a disbelief. I can't believe there are still organizations that are, are years and years and years beyond where a startup would be, but they're still running their organization on spreadsheets and, and shared docs or even, even Airtable. Love Airtable, but, it, but it's not a CRM. Um, so that's one piece. And I think the way you can move over is simply they're moving from a static environment to somewhat of a little bit more dynamic but it's still mostly a database. Uh, the second thing would be if this organization has cobbled together a bunch of different tools. So we've seen instances where someone is using this CRM, this email marketing tool, this ad platform, this landing page tool, this, again, think about all of the different pieces. And I often call that a house of cards because if one of those tools integrations breaks, your whole entire automation sequence then comes to a halt. And if any of you have used tools, um, you know, I love tools like Zapier and Automate if you happen to have a tech stack that needs that. But the dreaded email that says one of your zaps didn't go. Yeah. <laughs> right now I have to stop and dig into that and look into what's going on and did the person get the email? Did they not? So all of that stuff. And then the third one would be when you're, let's say that you've got those tools and maybe they're all working together or you have HubSpot in a small instance and you're ready to really see the efficiency of the automation and, and the tools that are inside of tools, platforms like HubSpot. So if you have an influx of leads, every SDR should not be calling every single lead. You need to start working on what happens before they're eligible to talk to a salesperson so that you can prioritize the things that are worth the SDR's time versus the ones where the person's like, I'm just trying to find out about you guys. I'm not ready to talk to a salesperson yet. So really those three instances are, we see triggers uh, just like that, that, that people come and start talking about platforms like HubSpot. I've definitely been in the position of scenario number two before where uh, we've had a bunch of different tools, um, which have really just kind of grown organically within the business, you know, as, as we have grown as a team or as a business, you know, we have just used MailChimp here and Unbounce there or what have you. Um, and you're, you're right. I've actually found myself in that dreaded situation where suddenly one thing breaks down and you've got to take out an entire day speaking to four or five different customer service teams who are just kind of bouncing you from one platform to the other. It's not our fault. It's not their fault, whatever. Um, and that time is just much better spent creating. Um, and I would use this as an example that if, cause you, you mentioned that HubSpot can be a little bit pricey, um, uh, particularly for, 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 for early stage companies. I don't know what you think, but for me, looking back on it now, that investment would have paid uh, for itself in dividends. Um, 
in the time that I would have uh, collectively say from having to manage this growing Frankenstein technology stack across all the different things we're trying to do. Yeah, Frankenstein's a great way to put it because you do end up with some pieces that are very beautiful and some pieces that are just downright ugly. And I think as a marketer, I don't know if you've been in this position, Jason, but one of the most horrible situations that a new marketer can be in is they go, they they have an interview and they get excited about the job that they're going to do. They start on day one and then they open up this Frankenstein and they go, I can't even really do my job until I understand the Frankenstein, which getting your arms around all of that sometimes is hard to communicate that to the executive team of, listen, I really can't even do the job that you hired me to do because this is such a a giant rat's nest that I'm going to spend so much time managing the process and the tools than I am actually doing the marketing. So I think that's a... the, the executives that understand the investment of marketing tech. And I think that's, as a founder, that's one thing that I definitely believe from day one. We pay a lot of money for software tools for, as a small company. We're a team of nine, but I do that because we wouldn't be able to do our job if we didn't have those tools. Mm, 100%. So I think we've made a pretty good case for, uh, you know, why you should be investing in a marketing platform um, and some of the considerations to be made there. Um, but actually what prompted uh, me inviting you onto the podcast uh, was a tweet that you sent out a couple of weeks ago, um, which was talking to uh, the differences between lead status, life cycle stage, and pipeline stage. And I think, you know, for uh, marketers, it's important to understand the difference between these stages um, because, you know, it's it's easy to uh, get excited about the creative and all the promotion and promotion at the top. But, you know, ultimately that is all for a purpose, which is to drive business and understanding that journey that a customer will go through um, from, you know, reading your first blog post all the way through to, to signing a, a dotted line on a contract and how that's managed in a tool like HubSpot is, is very important. So define it for us. What is the difference between lead status, lifecycle stage and pipeline stage? So I'll start with the life cycle stage, that one in the middle first, that tends to be the one that comes up most often. It's the, it's the one that for people who are newest, newest to HubSpot, it's, it's the one that's maybe a little bit most foreign. And when, when a team says, well, these life cycle stages don't really make sense for our company, let's go ahead and change those and HubSpot default properties say, nope, can't change these. So there's this great. What do I do with these? How do I use these? And this really does support the inbound methodology of a lead coming in, doing their own exploration, staying in those stages before they're ready to move on to talk to a sales team. So to break it down inside of HubSpot, you have multiple stages in this, they're called life cycle stages. And the first one subscriber. So think about this as a, if, if I listen to your podcast, Jason, and I decide to get on your newsletter list, I am a subscriber. At that point, you could maybe research me as a subscriber and decide you want to move me to be a lead because I am the, whatever you sell, I might fit that, that um, profile, but you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm, I'm a subscriber. A lead would be anybody that comes in that um, is from some sort of a form or they've converted on an ebook or, or something of that nature. And so a lead, think about um, leads can be people that have no idea that you exist if you import them into the system as well. So leads came from a trade show or they came from, again, maybe everybody who attended a webinar. Those would be, those would be leads. Then the next level is marketing qualified leads. So if you're a marketer, you've heard the goal of we need to get 35 MQLs a month or 100 MQLs a month. So if you haven't yet had the word MQL tossed around in your organization, this is probably a conversation you want to have. 
So MQLs are really usually one of those uh, targets for marketing teams to create um, and how they're defined is these people are qualified as ready to be passed on to the sales team. So at that point, they need to have expressed enough interest that when the sales team calls them or emails them and they're not just, why are you calling me? Why are you emailing me? Like, where did you come from? So in that case, they've usually done a certain amount of activities. You can choose to have that assigned based on the activities. So let's say that they attended a webinar, read a blog post, open an email, and then you use a function called lead scoring to then assign them as a marketing qualified lead. That, that's how that works. Um, and SQL then is the cut. The sales team has essentially looked at that MQL or that marketing qualified lead and said, you know what? They probably do have a viable opportunity. I'm going to use my time and my effort to reach out to them and try to get them into an opportunity. So this is where this, like, we're now in the state, the life cycle stage of opportunity. And this is where the sub stages of deals, deal stages come in. So if, since we're on an audio medium here, I don't have a diagram for you, but I typically walk through all of this with a client on a diagram of think about this as like, okay, now we are dating. We are officially dating and there's, you know, we've talked about getting married, but there's the first day anniversary engagement. You know, that's what, that's what the deal stages are. So your deal stages in your company need to be specific to actions that are very, very characteristic for you. There's no defined deal stages that you have to follow from HubSpot. You need to develop those yourself. And the, the less you have, the better, as long as they're it's specific enough to know that if Jason, you looked at my pipeline, you would know, you know, let's say stage number four, you would know exactly what's going on in stage four. And it's not just like qualification. Well, what does that mean? Have we had a meeting? Have we not had a meeting? Like specificity matters. And then after opportunity, you're going to get to the, someone becomes a customer. And then after they're like, they can stay a customer for essentially forever. Or if you want to cycle them out to be an other or an evangelist, um, you can define how you want to use those. But life cycle stages help me understand the level of the contacts engagement with the company on the, the spectrum of, of all the way to like suspect subscriber to customer or evangelist. So essentially what it is, is it's a way of measuring, I guess you could say the, in, the intent uh, of that potential buyer, right? If they right. are at the kind of, you know, left end of the spectrum on the subscriber side, as you said, they are interested in hearing from you and learning about uh, you potentially and, and getting the content that you're putting out there, but they're not at that point now where um, they, they, they could be a, a viable commercial opportunity, but then the further they move along that process um, and, and then those life cycle stages, it's just increasing your understanding as a business around their intent to potentially buy your product or service, if I understood it correctly. Yeah. And this is a really good tool for the marketing and especially, I would say, especially the marketing teams. Um, it, it never a day goes by that an executive team somewhere doesn't say, Hey, what does our pipeline look like? And typically what they're wanting to see is they're wanting to see the people who are in the deal stages. They want to see how much potential business does live in our pipeline. And when do we think it's going to close? So the, the, I would say mistakes that are often made from sales and marketing teams is to appease the executives. I'm going to put a lot of people into opportunities, but yet they're all 5% probability of closing. I mean, that's just a horrible ratio. And if you're 5% of even a million dollars, like that's still not very much money. So if you look at the stages that exist before that, we can have an educated conversation with our executive team about, listen, we actually have a 12 to 18 month sales cycle. So someone may not have the trigger for us to be 
pursuing them as a potential customer, but they still are a marketing qualified lead. And we're going to continue to nurture and market to them. And then all of a sudden we have an, a webinar that speaks specifically to a problem they have, and they have the, the trigger at that time to reach out, or we've seen them take an increase in our activity. They viewed our pricing page, whatever that happens to be to now warrant, let's have more deeper conversations. And actually there's sales potential in quarter four. You mentioned lead scoring uh, when you were explaining the different stages. Um, could you develop that a little bit further um, as a means to moving people along uh, the, the the life cycle stages? Like what kind of activities, or what is lead scoring first, just for those who, who need to know? And otherwise, what kind of activities are you measuring to, to kind of gauge that level of intent? Sure. So HubSpot has two types of lead scoring. And for most people listening to this, if they're, if they're rather new to HubSpot or if they don't pay for the marketing enterprise, most of the people that, that we work with are on the pro tools and the pro tools come with manual lead scoring. So manual lead scoring is assigning some sort of activity or mechanism in the system, a value. So for instance, if you're a prospective customer or client or contact opened up an email, maybe they got five points. If they attended a webinar, they might've got 40 points. And ultimately what you're doing is assigning what score you're looking for, for them to hit a specific, like, I guess, you know, ding, ding, this person's ready to be talked to. Um, so we might call that an MQL stage. So to become an MQL, perhaps you need a lead score of 100. So the thing with that over time is when you first start using HubSpot, you probably don't know what that score is. So you will be doing some educate, educated guesses. And then as a, almost like a force mechanism, you should be reviewing that quarterly to ensure that your sales team, there's nothing that makes them more upset than marketing teams passing off leads saying these guys are ready to talk. And the sales team says, absolutely not. This, these are junk leads, right? Yeah. So the um, predictive lead scoring is available in marketing enterprise. And you have to have, I forget what the minimum number is, but you have to have a minimum number of contacts with activities to be able to even have the system use their machine learning or AI perspective to help you indicate when someone's ready. So they'll use... If, if we have 500 contacts that have eventually become an MQL, it will then analyze that data and predict when someone's most likely to become an MQL or, or a customer. So that is, again, very powerful. But even if you upgrade to marketing enterprise today, you won't see the benefits of that until you have at least that a minimum amount of activity on those contacts in the system going forward. Yeah, I think to your point about giving sales junk leads, uh, you're absolutely spot on. I think it's very easy for us marketers to go out there and do a webinar or put out a piece of content that generates 500 leads and then say, hey, there's my quarterly target done. And then you send it over right. to sales and you get an angry email back saying only you know 5% of these are actually relevant to us and 5% of that number are ready to talk. And mm -hmm. all you've done there is made yourself feel good for a short moment in time but wasted a lot of time actually for the organization with, with sales having to actually go through this, this list of, um, uh, of potential contacts. What I found successful in the past, and, and I'd be keen to get your uh, point of view on this, is when it comes to developing a lead scoring system, um, it always benefits you to bring sales into that process and not to create it in isolation. Um, deciding together what are the activities that actually make a difference for us as a business? And what's the threshold that we can collectively agree on that once it's reached, that means a marketing qualified lead has been generated. And you always have to have a caveat with these things because mm -hmm. there's no perfect formula or silver bullet. 
I, I find depending on the scale of your business, it always is worth before you send over a list of MQLs um, that you've just exported from, from a system like HubSpot to cast your eye over it yourself and just, you know, pick out anyone that, you know, for sure, potentially won't be a, an MQL. But um, yeah, I think my, my wider point here is building that lead scoring system in collaboration with your colleagues and sales is the right way to go. What would you say? Yeah, absolutely. The thing that I think will also become very important as we look at if marketers aren't already buzzing about some of the development notes from Apple's you know, recent iOS update, the, the metric of email opens is going to be somewhat, if it's not already one of these kind of vanity type metrics, it, it, it will become even more ineffective for us going forward. So I think the engagement metrics are things that really lead scores should be built around. So are they engaging with our content? Are they clicking through an email? Are they, do we have a phone call that's been accepted? So some of those things that instead of just, I got in their inbox and, and even now a lot of the large companies, their security software will open their email for you and register as a fake open, but there's nowhere than in HubSpot or systems like that, that'll tell you this was a fake open. So I think as we look at lead score, you can to reverse engineer it is one of the best ways to go about it. So look at the last 10 people that have converted and study their profiles and study some of the things that they have done. And you'll find that there may be some patterns you can pull out with some critical thinking to at least set the foundation for what that lead score might look like. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally understand what you talked a little bit about this a moment ago, but I want to dive into it in a little bit more detail, which is, you know, what are the benefits that marketers specifically can, um, uh, achieve by understanding the entire uh, life cycle of a potential customer, right from acquisition to conversion? What can they do that they wouldn't be able to do if they didn't understand these different stages? Yeah. So the one stage we really haven't talked about yet is that there's this lead status stage, and that's usually for use by the sales team. And so I, I bring that up because there's, um, if you think about most companies will talk about we have prospects or leads, we have customers, and then we have you know whatever else the other the other bucket is. But because there's there's two buckets that that bucket of leads is just so there's so many variables and it's so wide that it is hard to market to those folks. We don't know if someone's just exploring. We don't know if someone happens to be farther on the process. We don't know if somebody has expressed intent and then switched organizations. So there's there's so much data in this one title of lead that even as a, as a marketer, the breakdowns of leads, marketing qualified and sales qualified helps me prioritize what the, the both velocity at which we need to market to them and then also the relevancy of what they're after. So if they engage with certain pieces of content, that shows me that they're interested in X. The lead statuses help me as a marketing, as a marketer communicate with the sales team on what type of content that I create are they using in their outreach process. And so it's almost more of that sales enablement piece. So lead statuses are things in HubSpot. Not all companies use them but they are defined at first because you need something out of the gate to use. So it's new, open, attempted to contact, connected. Again, those are very self-explanatory. I think the biggest discrepancy is between new and open. What does that mean? Um, <laughs> you know, I would argue that some, most companies think that those are the same thing. So you just basically need as a team to know, did somebody claim this 
as a lead? And are you attempting to contact them? Again, this only becomes an issue when you have a lot more influx of content or influx of leads. If you have two leads come in a month, you probably aren't going to use like lead status because you're going to know what's going on with them. But you want to use that to segment. So if everybody who's attempted to contact, but they haven't responded to you, that might be an excellent opportunity to use that as a marketer, to send them an invite to a webinar, because that's a very specific thing that can move them from, they don't care about your sales outreach, but this webinar is very interesting to them. So as a marketer, it helps you really help the sales team with those lead statuses of giving recommendations to the sales team and being like consultative partners, as opposed to, well, marketing team, I don't like they're, I'm attempting to contact them and they didn't. I just haven't gotten in front of them. So, you know, blast them some emails. If nobody ever asked me to blast anyone an email again, I will like live a happy woman because I <laughs> let, that term is awful, but it, it does help this collaborative conversation on what should we be creating? Um, how are they engaging with it? What one of these, these messages in our sequences did people most respond to? And then how do we build more of that? Mm. It's enabling yourself to be better educated on exactly what's happening. And I think, you know, my experience working in B2B, um, I've worked largely with companies who either have been startups, so they've been building their infrastructure from scratch, or they, you know, are well-established businesses, but have never really had to do marketing, I say with air quotes, because, you know, they have been a pre predominantly sales-led organization. Um, sure. But, you know, things are changing. B2B buyers are discovering new products and services in different ways. And, um, you know, a digital first approach is a must for the modern day B2B company. And um, having the knowledge, certainly I've found over the last few months of using HubSpot to be able to go into conversations with my sales colleagues and actually come with data and say, right you know, that I haven't just had to kind of, you know, throw together from different spreadsheets and scrambling through emails and doing a bunch of manual work to get that information, if I can get it at all, has been hugely powerful in um, increasing the efficiency between the two teams. You know, we're actually now having um, uh, educated conversations on, okay, how do we best spend our marketing budget on the activities that we know now are actually resonating and you know it takes the emotion out of the conversation mm -hmm. because if if sometimes i feel in, in, in b2b in particular um there are vanity channels you know mm -hmm. people want to do things like putting a press release across the wire or they want to spend 20 grand on getting a speaking opportunity at some event and if that makes us all feel very good, right? If it, mm -hmm. get pick, if it gets picked up by Yahoo Finance or someone pulls you aside after you get off the stage and they say, great talk, but actually what have you got at the end of it in terms of mm -hmm. driving the business forward and having a platform like HubSpot as a marketer, having an understanding of how these different stages operate and having the tool to be able to analyze where customers are in between these different stages and make educated informed decisions as a result of that is hugely powerful and can only further cement the position of marketing within the, within the business. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think in certain cases, we find that content resonates really well with their current customers. So using that lifecycle stage, our email open rates with this were phenomenal and people really enjoyed it and they engaged with it. We sent that same piece of content to prospective clients or prospective customers and the engagement was was awful and it wasn't clicked through. So that tells me that the people we're trying to market to don't actually understand that they have this problem yet. So we have, you know, the content is too specific to this use case and we need to step up higher in the funnel and actually introduce the idea or, or open that kind of crack of curiosity that they have something that's holding them back from achieving greater whatever the XYZ is. And that content needs to be respun for the prospective clients versus the ones that we've already got, you know, on our email list. Mm, no, I understand. Um, I was going to ask you how early you think a company should be having this kind of conversation, though I think I know the answer as early as possible. Um, uh, I think I'm going to just re rephrase that question instead to be more, if you, if you're working with businesses who are already well-established and they already are using, uh, you know, sales are using one set of tools and marketing are using another set of tools, you know, how, how can a marketer navigate that scenario, because ideally you all get onto the same platform and you're all using the same kind of methodology to measure kind of where a customer is and how to get them to where you want them to be for a company where the marketing and sales teams are disconnected. What would be your kind of first moves to bring them closer together? Sure. I think this is one of those challenges that as we, as we go forward, I will answer your question in a second, but I'm going to offer, offer a caveat. I think really talented marketers are, despite the fact that we've all been able to really move remote in our hiring and we can kind of work with anybody, there are still really great people that will only come on board if you are, if, if given the right tools and the right setup. And so there are, there are people that you may want to bring on your team as a, as a marketing talent. And if there is absolutely zero collaboration between the marketing and sales teams, and they find that out on day seven, they're probably going to leave. So I think as a, as an organization and a culture, there needs to be a shared understanding from the top down. And that's hard when you're a marketer coming into a space where you like, how, how can I make a difference here? So, um, I think really as a marketer, a couple things, one, um, the mindset of is we're really, we are really salespeople of, of marketing to the entire organization. So in the same way that we need to understand what's important to our customers, our customers as marketers is everybody in the org. So we have to think about what's important to the sales team, what's important to the executive team, what's important to the CFO, and really build our own proposal to them in order for them to see the way that it will benefit their environment. Because if not done that way, and even sometimes when it is done that way, there's still roadblocks, but if not done in that manner, you end up with a, this, these marketing people want to change all of the things we're doing. I'm just trying to sell stuff. And I think I had a conversation this weekend with a, I was at a, a, a soccer camp and actually just this, this other dad and I were talking about he's in sales. They don't have a CRM and he didn't think they need a CRM. And I don't, argue with where they are. What I argue with is when he cycles out in 10 years and retires, what happens with the future of the company and all these relationships that have been built. And so it's that idea that, wow, I never actually invested in retirement and now I'm retiring and 
I don't have any money. So I think looking <laughs> forward and realizing it's, it's this like constant battle between internal engagement based on what's important to the people in the org today, and also somewhat future casting and saying, here's what's going to happen if you don't. And there's plenty of case studies out there of what you, what happens if you don't, the biggest thing that, that scares a lot of people right now is your competitors will do it faster and beat you to it. And they will get the market before you do. So if nothing else, that's always in your back pocket of, of showing them what someone else is doing because nobody, no sales leader or executive wants to be the first to do things, but they never want to be the last behind their competition. I've really enjoyed this chat, Ali, and I'd love to just keep going and digging into her, the, the, the beauty of HubSpot and the intricacies of establishing the perfect lead scoring <laughs> sure. uh, formula because uh, it's something I love getting into the weeds about and, and discussing. But unfortunately, we haven't got time. I want to ask you um, a more uh, general question about where you think the market is going and how B2B uh, companies are going to continue to market or how they're going to evolve their marketing over the next five years, what do you think is going to be different uh, come 2026 and how B2B brands uh, market themselves? Yeah, I have a couple, I have pretty strong feelings about this and have, have talked about it a lot recently, but I do think there's two, two things that we're seeing. And um, actually your guest, I think on last episode, Claire talked about this a little bit in her employee advocacy. I think we're seeing the, I hate this term, but B2B influencer um, now come to this space. People want to find the people behind the brands and not the brand itself. And so your brand is only as strong as the people inside of it, their thought leadership and their, their expertise. Um, Founder-led companies that are out marketing themselves along with their products are you know, twice or three times more successful with their marketing than those that are just trying to push things out behind the company brand. Um, and then the second thing is people are looking for time savings. So anything that we were doing before and educating people about content, it's now about content creation, getting me to the best answers quicker and faster so that I don't have to sift through everything. Like where marketers are actually going to be helping people make sense of the white noise versus educating them. So I do think those are two things that will shift in the next five years if they're not already today. I'm going to give you a little bit of a shout out on the first one talking about uh, B2B influencers because uh, I was watching some of your HubSpot hack YouTube videos um, before we jumped onto this interview. And I think for anyone who is looking for a kind of 101 masterclass on the platform and how to get things set up, they should definitely check it out. And I'll make sure I drop a link uh, to your YouTube channel in the description of this episode. Um, before I let you go, Ali, who do you think I should interview next on B2B Better? I have a couple of ideas for you. Um, I wanted to also give a, sorry, my internet connection went unstable. No, you're right. Okay. I also wanted to give a shout out to a couple that I've really, really enjoyed that I wanted to make sure they hadn't already been on your show, but um, Sean Blanda, uh, uh, Sid Ali, and then obviously Claire, I really enjoyed their art. I actually found, I started listening to your podcast after Sid's episode. Uh, I appreciate this episode. I know things have changed for him since then, but still one um, of the most listened episodes uh, nice. of the entire series. And considering it was one of my first ones, um, yeah, he, all three, Sean, uh, Claire, and Syed are, are all amazing marketers. Awesome. Very good. Well, I have a couple of, of um, recommendations. John uh, Doherty, he runs a company called Credo and they help agencies uh, find other, other marketers um, and, and marketing agencies uh, to bring on. Um, Adrian Barnes works with personas. I think a really in-depth conversation about personas would be wonderful. And then um, Mark, um, I can't say his last name. He's from, 
I want to say Denmark, but Mark, sorry if that's not right. Um, uh, Gruenig, I think is how you say it. But he has a B2B uh, SaaS platform that helps sales and marketing teams pull their content out for sales enablement more effectively. Uh, it's called Emlyn, but uh, yeah, happy to make any of those connections for you. I'm going to definitely be hitting you up for some email introductions with those three, Adrian. Uh, I think in particular, um, I was just saw a couple of tweets where people were asking about um, whether buyer personas are worthwhile anymore. And uh, she came in and fiercely defended them. Um, <laughs> yeah. As you could imagine, but uh, yeah, that would be a great episode actually. So I'll definitely hit you up for those introductions. Ali, it's been phenomenal finally getting the chance to chat with you. You're so knowledgeable about how to help uh, B2B companies turbocharge their uh, lead generation efforts. And I really thank you for coming and sharing some of your wisdom with us today. Yeah, thank you. It was fun and uh, look forward to the next conversation we can have. Absolutely. Thanks. That's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you've enjoyed it, you can check out my previous episodes via the link in the description. Or if you fancy getting a nice hot steaming mug of B2B marketing advice on how to build an audience for your brand, you can sign up to my newsletter, the B2B Byte, which goes out every Monday. I'll drop the link to that also in the description of this episode. See you next time.